Welcome to Relational Mission, A Way of Life, a podcast series where we discuss what it means to be a family of churches on mission with God to be globally fruitful, crossing all boundaries to reach nations, make disciples and plant locally led churches. In this episode, we're discussing the book Relational Mission, A Way of Life with the author Mike Betts. Welcome to another podcast show. I'm Isaac Butcher, your host, alongside Adam Voke and Mike Betts. Today we are covering chapter six in Mike Betts' book, Relational Mission, A Way of Life. And this chapter is titled Starting New Families. And just so all of our listeners are on the correct page, we are talking about planting and establishing churches, not procreation. Now, to help us in this conversation, we are joined by Steph Liston and Morris Nightingale, who are involved in leadership and planting churches in the UK and Europe. So we're very blessed to have them with us to discuss this chapter. Now, before we begin, as always, I have a quick icebreaker question for everyone to answer. So to you first, Steph, if someone came up to you and said, hey, do that thing you do, what thing would pop into your head first? <laughs> Oh, gosh, I don't think you want to know. Uh, yeah. yeah, welcome. <laughs> welcome, Steph, with that question. Yeah, thanks, Isaac. That's great. Um, I would probably do some body popping. Nice. Yeah, I can body pop <laughs> and I would do body can popping. Can we see that on Zoom? You really know? <laughs> another time. We'll do, a, we'll do a body popping session another time. But, yeah, that's what <laughs> I would do. Amazing. How about you, Morris? Uh, I think I'd probably pull a very surly face and say, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> I know my kids... You're not good at gurning. No, my kids would have some answers for that question, but I'm not going to share them on uh, on this particular platform. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. Um, Mike? Gosh, that thing that you do, I mean... <laughs> I think I'm just so ordinary. I don't have any distinctive features whatsoever at all in terms of talent. I can juggle for about thirty seconds without dropping it. Can we? Can we? Can we answer for each other? Because yeah, know, come on. Uh, I would definitely say for Mike, it would be uh, he'd show you his tortoise. That would be uh, the one thing that I would expect him to do. Yeah. Uh, two tortoises actually, yeah. which wow. are both now in a fridge hibernating at five degrees over the winter. Just as a little bit of tortoise information there, if anyone wants to know. Is that tortai if it's too? <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Adam? It, it would have to be the very strange, slightly disturbing thing of turning my eyelids inside out without actually oh. using my hands. Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's a cracker. Yeah. yeah. So God, do it now. That one is it, it's you, podcast. He, he so his, it doesn't work too well on podcast. No, well, we can see it. No, I, I, I refuse. <laughs> if Steph does his, if Steph does his popping and, and Mike shows us his tortoises, then maybe. I guess if I did my body popping, that would give you a chance to get your shoes and socks off, so you could get your feet ready to turn your eyelids inside out, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't even use them. Wow, That's, that is impressive. Yeah. Well, in coming up with the question, I hadn't actually thought about what I would what I would answer myself, but I'm guessing it'd probably be um, uh, this, and 
nobody on the Whoa, podcast yeah. can, can see what I I'm like doing. That. But I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Let's keep let's keep let's keep the, uh, the 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 listeners in mystery. Let's not not, yeah. not let them know what that was. But that yeah. was serious. Let me tell you that that was serious. What happened right there? That's amazing. You, and you really look like you've lost weight, Isaac, as well. <laughs> oh gosh. All right then. So uh, let's let's kick this off then about uh, starting new family. So I think the first thing, Mike, is to um, define what that means. What is what is a new family? Is it a, uh, a large split or branch off from a church, or or is it just literally like a completely brand new intentional launched group? Well, I think the first thing is just to define what we mean by a church, and uh, just thinking through some old sort of. Um, uh, confession statements where you get uh, definition of church as the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. Or another one says, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted, a church of God exists. So I think we're, we're talking about something that's visible in a locality preaches the word as the sacraments, communion, baptism. I would also add, you know, as properly God-ordained leadership, <coughs> which, um, you know, is recognised by those in the church and followed by those in the church and has the sense of God's anointing on the leadership so that those are the hallmarks of a local church. How those come about uh, is, is varied methods. So in some people... Uh, there's an evangelistic activity takes place in a location, people get saved, and then a church is planted on the back of that. That would certainly be what the the result of the Great Commission was, and Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. The apostles instinctively went out and witnessed um, and then planted local churches instinctively uh, as a result of that. So people were saved and added to something in their locality where they could then live out the Christian life and... Um, be in a group that became known as a church, uh, the, the, the called out ones, as it were, the, the assembly of the believers. So I think that can happen. Local churches can also send out a group um, or a number of groups within their own town and locality and keep one eldership team overseeing the whole lot or plant separate local congregations, each with their own autonomous eldership. There can be individuals who feel called to go and pioneer somewhere in another nation or another town, and they start with a, just a small core. There can come apostolic initiative from us as a team, saying we want to really feel prophetically led to to impact that particular area. We're going to gather resources and people to, to send to that area. So there's a whole variety of ways. And we, we tried to use the word uh, very helpfully, or the phrase very helpfully coined by, by Steph and some of what he'd been doing in London of using the word... Uh, a gospel plant uh, rather than a church plant in the early days because it can really put a pressure on people who are wanting to plant a church but they've only got like I don't know, six people and you think that feels a bit of a pressure to call it a church plant so we kind of call it a gospel plant where we're trying to plant the gospel in the community and then once it's reached a certain sort of size or momentum then it might be that we call it a church plant only when it's got to the point where we appoint its own elders. So apostolically, we'd oversee it. We'd build good supply lines to nurture it of other Ephesians 4 ministries, you know, apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. We'd just want to serve that church plant as it gets going. And once there's an apostolic uh, recognition and, and laying on of hands of, of collective eldership in that uh, church plant, then it would become a, a church, a fully-fledged church in its own 
Right, so that's kind of what we mean by starting new families. We mean starting a process through whatever means, whatever providence, you know, whatever journey it starts on, getting to a point where ideally through mission and people getting saved, but also some people just move or are in the locality and attracted to it, but primarily it should be mission. Um, So it's the outworking of evangelistic mission where people get saved, we gather a group, um, call it a church plant when it's got some momentum, eventually appoint elders from that locality and then it becomes a church. That's what we mean by starting new families and we want to see that done again and again and again. That's the sort of heartbeat of, of who we are as relational mission. So can I ask, um, this goes out to, to to you, Mike, Morris and to Steph, uh, about numbers because um, I've, I read recently that back in the, in the days of the first churches that uh, a typical Roman family could actually, or Roman household, could actually have up to 35 people in that household. Um, which which meant if you were talking about um, churches and 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 groups that have gathered, and you were looking at uh, lots of smaller churches, for example, um, and we take into account the the studies on um, the optimum number of people who can have meaningful interactions and relationships. So there's a guy called um, uh, Dunbar. Robin Dunbar, who studied this, and and the the theory was that uh, one person can only have up to 150 people within a group and have meaningful relationships with them. But even with that number, they'd need to spend about 42% of their uh, social time hanging with them to to keep those and maintain those relationships. Now, if we go back to the first church and the concept that families household sizes were were potentially larger or could be, then that might only be five or six households. So, in terms of all of your experiences uh, in the UK and and abroad, how does how do these mathematical kind of numbers and equations and ideas play in? Well, I think I mean at the end of the day. <clears throat> Um, uh, a church is a um, a community that wants to live according to the governance of God, with with Jesus as uh, you know the the head and the cornerstone and the leader. Um, so I, I don't think I, I so much think about you know is there sort of a critical mass in terms of numbers and so on and so forth. I mean, um, Terry Virgo, uh, you know, has said you know we're we're uh, a values-driven movement, not a style-driven movement. So we're not looking for a particular style, you know, should we have small house groups, should we have mega church, whatever. No, we're looking for values that are going to work their way through whatever scale or size or context of community that you're looking at, but you're looking for communities that are gathered around the Word of God, that, that are, you know, are grace-filled communities that love the manifest presence of God and are committed together on the mission of God, and these are the sort of the primary values, and that could work out in a, um, uh, you know, in a small, uh, remote uh, church of, uh, you know, five or six households, or or it could work its way through a church of of many many thousands, you know. But the key is that it is demonstrating to its context what it means to build community around the values of Jesus and, uh, you know, we're, we're a, God, a God-centred community. That's what a church is. And so when we're multiplying churches, we're multiplying God-focused communities. We're going to live the way God intends mankind to live. 
um, according to his ways and not according to the ways of the world. So this is how we deal with one another. This is how we resolve conflicts. This is how we forgive one another and move on. And this is what it means to be the people um, living in the way that God wants. So I think that, that's what drives us rather than, you know, a particular scale or, you know, critical mass of numbers and so on and so forth. So. I guess what I, I was um, also trying to get to, is there a, a good strategy? So if you are deciding to send a team of people out or for example you're setting up a a a, a leadership team is there a, a strategy in doing that and 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 you know in terms of a mega church obviously they can have lots of effective smaller groups that meet together and hang out together but is there a strategy when you're actually going to to set out to plant yeah i mean i think this is a really really important question um i tend to in in our experience i tend to feel that um you can send, I think this is part of where some local churches get a little bit nervous about church planting because they think it might mean we have to sort of multiply ourselves and so you have sort of one church suddenly sort of splits in half and becomes two or they think, you know, we're going to have to lop off a limb or a, an arm or something. But, you know, a tree or a plant, when it sends out, it sends out a seed. It sends out a seed. And so a local church of, of 30 people can, can send a seed. It can send a person or a couple to go and plant a church. And, um, and, and from a very small seed, something great can grow. But in our experience, if you can send a number of seeds together, it accelerates the process. So you can send one couple and they can go and, and, and live a gospel lifestyle and see a small community start to grow around them and then it builds pace and grows. If you can send two, three, five, seven households, that, that process is accelerated. But both are legitimate. You know, it's not that one is... But in our experience, we find if you can send a bunch of people and, and create a model prototype community, it accelerates the process of planting. Um, but, uh, you know, to every local church, I'd be saying, please send a seed, you know, and you're involved in church planting. You know, you don't have to send a church or a team to plant, just send a seed. Those, in every local church, there'll be people called to go. And uh, we should create the pathways for them to go. And we uh, seeds together can then accelerate and multiply and plant their churches wherever they go. Amen and hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, so um, we, we, we recently held a, a little mini conference called Plant UK, where we were particularly um, gathering those thinking about the UK. And uh, you've got part at the moment, you know, we, we want to plant, a uh, hundred churches in the UK in the next twenty years, and and you look at that initially, and 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 then and and everyone starts saying, how are we going to do that? But then when we boiled it down, we said, well, look, if if every if every church every five years planted a seed um, or a few seeds, you know, in that period of time, we would go from forty something to six hundred and something, and so. The, the secret that really unlocks it isn't superstar churches, isn't, you know, uh, it, it's every church saying this is a, a part of normal church, healthy church life is to multiply. Um, and we're all owning it and we're all playing our part. Um, and and the, the leadership particularly are saying, this is us, this is what we do. This isn't just for, it's not a special calling. It's not just certain churches can do it. It's just part of healthy church life and that is what unlocks the multiplication 
potential. That's what takes it to a completely different level rather than just trying to find one or two special churches that have got the, you know, in quotes, resources to make that happen. I think you've got to simplify it and look to get everybody on board. And then I think you, you enter a whole different dynamic. And then in regards to, for example, a church kind of gets to a certain size or capacity and, and then they decide, you know, we're getting a bit big and we want to split into two churches, that wouldn't technically be um, starting a new family. I think any situation where you've got a church that wants to multiply its presence, either in its own town, in different areas of the town or city, or one that wants to reach out to other nations or wants to support other and church planting initiatives going on within the, the group of churches that they work with. I think that's that's what we mean by starting new families, sending individuals. I mean, many of our churches do what they call a call-to-go group, where, you know, we just try to encourage individuals who are thinking at some stage they might want to be part of a church plant somewhere, just to, to nurture and foster that sense. So I think it's healthy for every church to have its eye on multiplication. Now, there isn't, you know, an ideal size for a local church. And I suppose if the question's asked, what is the ideal size? The answer would be bigger uh, because we all want the church to grow. But sometimes the size of a church can, unless the structure is is adjusted with it, it can become a little impersonal. We can kind of lose that sort of sense of fellowship. So it has to be sort of broken down into groups and communities where everyone feels they've got a meaningful contact of fellowship with a number of people and Sometimes that can happen through multi-site, through one church, uh, overseen by one eldership, but in lots of locations. Sometimes it can happen through planting different churches. Sometimes it can happen through a very, very uh, comprehensive small group structure with just one eldership still all gathering corporately together. There's, a, there's no end of variations. I think that the principle is whether a church is meeting in a house or meeting in a warehouse or or meeting in in some other school or whatever context, the same hallmarks of a church are visible, whether it's large or small, you know, properly constituted, gospel preached, word of God preached, sacraments administered, God appointed eldership, leadership over overseeing that, the affairs of the church. So I think starting new families is a... A, a DNA, it's a sign of a healthy family that it has uh, offspring, so which is why we've used the analogy of starting new families, because going right back to Genesis, God said, be fruitful and multiply. It's part of his creation mandate. So when it comes to the church, to be fruitful and multiply brings means you know bringing many people to know Christ, and they all need to be in good, healthy, local New Testament value-founded, uh, local church life. So the more of those we can multiply, the better. And I think at the moment in the coronavirus pandemic, where church has gone online, uh, whilst it won't replace um, meeting physically, I do think it's opened up a whole new raft of areas to be explored to reach more people who we might not have reached. I think it's also made many people go very local, reaching out to their neighbours a bit more in mission. So I think, sadly, within church, it can be so absorbing that you just often don't, um, sadly, I think a church can become so absorbing that uh, I think um, we can often lose missional contact, evangelistic contact with people because we're so involved in church activity. I think that balance needs adjusting. And I think the context we're in of global pandemic might mean that we see more multiplication of church families 
in the coming season because we'll be starting more smaller house church type things uh, just to navigate the sort of social distancing and large gathering restrictions that there are. So it's an opportunity as well as it being a restriction. Uh, and I think, the, you know, we read the New Testament, we see there was large gatherings in the early days, a meeting in Solomon's colonnade in the book of Acts. Then when persecution broke out after the death of Stephen, the church was scattered, but they would have kept meeting in homes in secret in smaller numbers, and then eventually they'd pop up visibly in Acts 11 uh, in, uh, in Antioch. And there was about a 10-year gap between Acts 8 and Acts 11, and it takes only perhaps 10 minutes to read it, but it was a 10-year journey of being scattered, then gathered together. So the church will always find context to express the life of the church. And, and I think whether it's a big church planting two or you know dividing into two, multiplying into two, or whether it's what sorts of different ways, missional surface area contact is what we're looking at. And that's the thing... I think to pursue, to pursue whether it's locally in your area, into the nations around or into the far corners of the earth. Um, and what, what do you feel, Mike, in terms of the way in which God speaks about the need to plant new churches? At the beginning of the chapter, you, you talk about walking along by the sea and, and the Holy Spirit seemed to be inspiring you to pray and you were praying across different nations uh, and with that expectancy that, that people were going to go, people were going to be sent. W- what about the tension between God telling us to go personally and the fact that the Bible seems to already have told us to go? Do we need to hear from God? Can we not just crack on with it, make a plan, let's go? Yeah, certainly I do think there is something that needs to be recaptured by the church in terms of us all being commissioned to go and I think we mustn't separate church planting from evangelism. So the, the go doesn't mean a go to plant churches. It's a go to be witnesses, to make disciples. And church planting is um, a vehicle that runs alongside that, that facilitates it and is the result of it. It's kind of two sides of one coin. So I don't think those two things can be separated. And, and they're certainly at their healthiest when they're kept very closely together. And we, church planting should have a leading edge of evangelistic witness and mission. But evangelism and mission must never take place without thought being given for healthy local church um, communities being established as a result of the mission. Uh, both would be unfruitful in the longer term so we're we're all called to go and I think whether we go to our neighbours whether we go to our friends colleagues families just strangers in our community through different outreach events we, we we've got to be those who are going even if we're staying as it were even if we're in the same we've lived in the same place all our lives there's still people to reach all around us and we must we must bring that together with the church planting agenda that whole subject of mission um, I do think, though, that there are specific callings that different people have. So Paul was called to the Gentiles. Peter was called to the Jews. We find different direction being given to different people in the New Testament, particularly about as to where they went or with whom they went. So I think people can be called to a location. They can be called to work with a person. Uh, all of that is legitimate. And there are unique providential callings that come upon each of our lives 
And we must be attentive to that and open to that. And very often that will come prophetically uh, and it will be backed up by providential circumstances. Other times providence will lead us somewhere and we find ourselves to have been led in the will of God without a particular uh, sense of the prophetic in, in some cases. But I would always say that God does tend to speak prophetically when he's going to do something. There's always some leading that takes place. Um, and the, in the illustration of me walking the beach praying for sons and daughters in the nations to be uh, raised up was not just about us sending people there. It was actually, I was more like, in my mind, I was more praying for God to raise up people in those nations and connect us with them because I think the best people to plant churches in a culture are people from that culture because they have the heart language, they have the heart culture, they understand the people, they are going to be um, most readily accepted <coughs> in their culture and they haven't got to go through years and years of training to make themselves ready to reach a culture. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do cross-cultural mission. I'm not saying that. I just think there is a strong emphasis at the moment, particularly with the fact that we can connect globally at the touch of a button uh, travel, apart from the coronavirus thing, travel has been much easier now globally in recent years, generation, this generation. The internet, as I say, lots of training, lots of ability to connect online. I think we can train people in indigenously where they live without having to leave our studies uh, or our living rooms. We can we can connect in all sorts of ways. So I, I'm looking and maybe even this podcast might reach people who are thinking, you know, I'd love to plant church where I live, in the nation I live. Could I connect with you guys and talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. We we want to, we believe that God will give us a field that he's assigned to us. There's people he's assigned to us to work with. Uh, and our job will be to help them become and achieve all that God has called them to be in their particular culture or nation or people group or uh, area of the city, wherever they live. So that's kind of um, what I mean by that. And what do you feel um, in terms of churches that aren't planting churches? Because if we look across the UK, it's not like every church, you know, any any denomination or network. It's not it's not that every church is busy doing this. Do you think Do you think it's a lack of teaching, or do you think maybe churches are apathetic or something else? Who knows? I mean, I'm sure there are numbers of different reasons in different settings, you know. Um, I think that there needs to be a, a paradigm shift where I think church leaders say part of being a normal, healthy church, you know, it's winning people to Jesus, discipling them well and, um, and actively engaging in the Great Commission, which is, you know, uh, reaching our locality, our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So meaningfully involved from 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 winning people to Jesus and making disciples right on our doorstep, right to the ends of the earth and being able to point to, you know, numbers of settings where that is very meaningful. It's not just, you know, a couple of specialists, the church is praying, there's resources going in there, you know, it's it's on the it's on the every it's what we are. It's not just this special thing. It's it's who we are. And I think that that's a, that is a paradigm shift because I think at the moment people see that as a bit perhaps uh, niche or novel or for the for the experts rather than just saying that that is normal Christian life and normal church leadership, you know. And, and so I think there is a paradigm thing going on there, that the shift that needs to happen, which I think if, if we just 
Um, I think you get what you preach for. And so I think if we just keep speaking into it uh, and, and, and making it clear that, you know, it's not a fad, but, but it's something that we just see is absolutely central across the board. Sooner or later, you know, your language creates your culture. Sooner or later, there'll be a culture shift among us. And um, it, people will realise this is what we are. We are what we are is a, a church planting, church strengthening family. That's what we are. That's what we do. And, and and being a part of us is that's that's what we do. So I do think there's probably just a season of um, talking about things really clearly in a way that, that, that shifts the paradigm, and that will and that will have hopefully have the effect both of teaching, changing thinking, but also stirring faith. So if there is apathy and the like, that that will get moved out of the way, and, and faith will replace it. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank, thanks, Steph. And what about the 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 tension between those that are called to stay and those that are called to go because some will hear it and feel well I'm not really radical enough because I don't want to go I don't feel called to go whereas all the celebration seems to be on people going they're the exciting ones um we're not saying that um but yet if you don't say it then no one will go because we all just stay where we are so is there any solution to that well, I do think the the vocabulary we use and the values we believe we've got to we've got to work a little harder perhaps in being able to not just celebrate those who move a long way away and seem to go on some great adventure but actually to have stories uh, updates in local church life um, a sense of adventure even if we're doing a multi-site or a missional community in another part of the town. It, uh, it is apostolic uh, mission. Apostolic mission can be seen as just somewhere into another nation or some big thing. No, it's, we are apostolic people on an apostolic mission and we use apostolic values and ministry and other Ephesians for ministries in order to make sure that that mission is effective and well-built and founded well. So we've got to perhaps encourage every local church, every local church eldership to use language of apostolic mission, even if they're just moving half a mile down the road to, to plant, um, you know, a missional community or a multi-site. And we are all called to go. We are all called to go. We're all called to mission, whether that is next door or in our street or to another culture, nation, language, context. The Great Commission is given to every believer. We are therefore to go and make disciples of all nations. That is something we are all commissioned to do. I was talking to leaders of a church recently who have a very, very big mission organisation on their doorstep and they are working very, very hard to create an environment within their own local church where the message isn't subliminally given, well, if you really want to go on an adventure with God, then go and sign up to this mission organisation because that's where the real action is. But if you don't want to do that, then just stay and be part of this local church and we'll just do the stuff that churches do. They're, they're a little bit sort of weary of that kind of thinking. It's not done intentionally, I suppose it's just... We can think that it's where short-term excitement uh, is happening that is where the real mission cutting-edge stuff is. And I, I would really say, no, every local church must keep a sense of apostolic momentum, apostolic vision, apostolic excitement and adventure 
If that starts to wane and we just become a pastorally based foundation where we're caring for one another, looking after each other, but we're never thinking in an apostolic way about how do we multiply what we are locally, regionally, nationally and internationally, then that's when the the sort of the rot can start to set in to um, vision and to momentum in a local church life. That's why God has given us Ephesians 4 ministries in the church first, apostles and prophets, not because they're more important, but because they're necessary to pump the prime, uh, prime the pump even, they're necessary to prime the pump so that uh, there is a there is a, a catching up in the bigger um, purposes of God. And we see where our own contribution fits within the, the mission of God, which is a global mission. So so being able to see our contribution, even if it's, you know, a mile down the road, is part of the global purposes of God. That's partly what apostolic and prophetic ministry does. And then evangelistic ministry, pastoral and teaching ministry coming into energise and ground that in local church life, I think is, is um, that's the dream ticket. I remember David Devonish uh, doing an exercise once where we had to imagine we'd been parachuted into some remote uh, culture or context in another nation. And he said, right, how now are you going to reach these people? And we were giving all the good answers about, you know, learning the culture and, and uh, try to build relationships and bridges and what are their needs and how can we... And, uh, and uh, you know, he set us all up for the, uh, the punchline, which was, what, you know, are you doing that in your own streets? And in your own estate or your own neighbourhood, you know, and uh, the, the the apostolic writings are for mission in every context, as Steph and Mike have both said. You know, they're not only reserved for people that happen to be going. You know, it is for our Jerusalem and our Judea and so on. It, it, you know, so I love that about the epistles is that the application is, you know, apostolic mission isn't the going somewhere else. It's the mission in every environment and every context. That's what apostolic mission is, and I think. One of the reasons why churches can get disconnected is that they think of apostolic mission as something other than their own mission. Um, no, every mission is apostolic mission. And uh, we can't separate these things out. And, um, uh, you know, we are all committed, as Mike said, to go in whatever environment that we are in. And uh, so I think I think having, as, as Steph says, this, this mindset shift that... And it's in some ways a little bit disappointing, you know, that as part of an apostolic movement, you're having to remind people that we're an apostolic people. That's what we are. Every single member of every single church is an apostolic, uh, is, is on an apostolic mission. And, uh, and so we, we need people to think apostolically, that, that, you know, not to be thinking just, um, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a single dimensional way, but to be thinking, no, hang on, we are all called as an apostolic people to the apostolic mission of God, and all of us have our part to, to play within that. So. so if people want to want to go, maybe maybe there's people listening to this and they're thinking about the UK, thinking about Europe, thinking about other places, and they're saying, yeah, I'm up for it, I'll go, but I'm, I'm here, I've got a job here. Maybe they've got family and kids in schools, but they're feeling, yeah, I, I would go. Is, is it all right for them to just up sticks and go? What, what do they need to do first? Who do they talk to? Where do they go? Do they just say, right, I'm called, I'm, I'm going off to this town, I'm going off to this nation. Is, is that going to work? 
or are there two or three things they should do in advance? What would that look like maybe for the UK, Steph, and then what would it look like in Europe, Morris? I mean, <clears throat> I think that a church that a church that cares about what we're talking about today will one of its priorities will be to incubate that kind of calling. It will it will take really really seriously. I mean, it will be it will be swinging from the chandeliers. The leaders will when people come and say that sort of thing because it, it's uh, it's just the most thrilling thing in the world to be able to walk alongside people who have felt a stirring from the Lord. Um, to be able to help them and to prepare them to walk with them um, so that they can do as well as possible. So I would say that what, what you'd want to do at that point is that you begin processing things together, seeking God together, um, asking spiritual questions, practical questions, and you just begin journeying together um, so that so that you can... Um, and, you know, God, the Bible says that God makes everything beautiful in its time, you know, and God, there's a moment where God stirs and then there's a moment where God quickens. So even if you look at, so for example, Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, you know, there was that moment where the Holy Spirit has set them apart from, for the work which, which I've called them. The calling came earlier, but there's that moment of, of setting apart. It's time to go now, it's a quickening. And so I think when people start feeling the calling and the stir and you come alongside that, you encourage that, um, you begin to sort of uh, build with them towards that. And then you're looking to the Lord for, for that moment of quickening, you know, when God says, now, you know, now's the time. And, uh, and I guess by the time that happens, you know, God may have brought other people out of the woodwork to gather with them to want to be a part of that. You would have been talking about that elsewhere. And just seeing what the Holy Spirit does. Once, when the Holy Spirit begins something in someone's heart, other things begin happening as well outside of that circumstantially. And so it's just weaving all of that in. But it's such an exciting thing to, when you're part of a church leadership to be able to nurture that. Um, so I, I would say that it's about journeying together uh, and, and making sure that people are as prepared as possible um, while still obviously recognising there's always the element where you've, you've got to simply trust God, but you're doing the be most diligent effort you can to make sure that people are as prepared as possible. Yeah, I think for um, <clears throat> people that may feel called to mission in another culture or nation, it's it's quite a similar um, uh, process and set of issues that you're looking at that Steph has just described. You're looking for this triangulation between the, the, the sense of personal call and testing that call. Um, of uh, involvement of their local leadership and, uh, you know, respecting the, the local leader's perspective on that, but also, as I say, triangulating them with uh, apostles and prophets. Um, you get that sort of sense of cross-bracing, you get the alignment of the planets, you know, there's the individual call, the elders are behind the call, the apostles and prophets are, are helping guide and steer that. Um, I mean, for people that are called to uh, mission in other nations, we're trying to create pathways and context for that call to be tested and worked through. Um, we, uh, you know, looking to get, create communities of people on that journey that they can then work uh, through this process together. We have a call to go group where people are able to uh, explore their call at, at every level, really, working through resources like Mike Frisbee's book, Reaching the Nations. There's a set of very, very helpful preparation questionnaires at the back of that book. Um, we're, we're, we're really urging people to find personal mentors who are going to take a deep and personal interest in their developments. 
and then connecting them with, uh, with authentic apostolic mission uh, in other nations wherever they may feel called. Um, I mean, an individual may feel called to another nation and we may get behind it with, uh, with apostolic faith. Um, a church may feel called to plant a church in another town and we will get behind their faith as apostles and prophets. But also, and significantly, and I think God has spoken to us recently, we're looking for that sense of apostolic and prophetic strategy together, apostles and prophets together, saying we believe this is what God is calling us to, and we're calling people uh, to to that strategy, um, you know, with the, the, the spearhead of apostles and prophets, saying, right, this is where we believe God is calling us, and now we are beckoning people into that mission. So all of those are valid. I think God has, has really spoken to us about that third uh, aspect of apostles and prophets together, uh, forging strategy for different parts of the country, like Steph, you know, leading the spearhead up to Liverpool, or it could be a, somewhere we believe God is opening up in the Netherlands or Germany or some other nation. And we're, we're really trusting God to speak to us in these ways. Can I just maybe add, just add one thing with my local leader's hat on is, is that we tend to, people that feel a sense to go somewhere, we tend to approach it in three categories. And we, I think, we uh, learned this. I think it was Steve Tibbet who who I first heard this from. It's very it's been really helpful for us. Different people that have come forward with a sense of wanting to go. The the, the first is people that we send, and that's that's where we've journeyed together. It's we've incubated it together. This is something that we we are doing. We own this with you. Um, you know, we're we're fully on board, and it's it it's it's our thing as a local church. We will be owning this in partnership. With the apostolic uh, and the prophetic, we're, we're doing this together. You know, there's there's money, there's prayer, there's, you know. And then, then that's sending. The next would be blessing. That's when we say, look, we can see the hand of God on this, um, but it's not necessarily something that we ourselves can own to that degree. It could be that some really good people have joined you, been around for a year or so, but they kind of joined your church with a sense of calling somewhere else anyway. You can see the hand of God on them, but maybe they're going to go with another organisation. But it's just not something that you've birthed and grown together, or or it's not something that even if you didn't birth it together, that you've kind of felt that that God has joined you with it. It's just something you can see God's in it, but you, you can't hand on heart say, we can get behind this with all that we are and then we you know we bless you the third category is release <laughs> it's when you go we can't lock you in the cupboard because that's illegal but this is going to be bad <laughs> you know this is like we are not in faith for this you know either because you know your own life there's just a trail of destruction <laughs> you know you're not you're not maturing you're not growing you're not listening to you're not teachable you know and you've got this thing in your head that god's called you there but Oh no! And at that point, we just say, Do you know what? We we we're not we 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 really don't feel peaceful about this, and we'll try and gently bring some kind of sober things, and you know, even if it looks really grave, some warnings, some pleas, you know. But if people just go, we're going, then we go, hey, you know, we release you. But it's been quite helpful to have those three categories in mind when people have, because I think if you. In a church that's really connected to apostolic mission and leadership, you will those those stirrings will will you know people will come to you with those things because you're exposing them to that whole kind of atmosphere, and so you will have numbers of those conversations. I would say probably fairly regularly, uh, particularly maybe for us in London, it's it's even more so because it's so transient, but. You know, I think it's really helpful to have some sort of clarity of thought about where to where to place those different sort of things that people bring to you. 
Uh, Mike, in your book, you give some really good examples of where people have gone out and they've planted churches, whether it be as older people being a uh, grand grandparents to to various uh, people in various locations, or, or being a young family and with small children, and even the children getting involved uh, with church planting. Um, this is a question again for everyone um, in terms of certain criteria. You know, is there sort of criteria you might look for? And actually, Steph, I guess this kind of adds on to that last uh, comment that you made about um, <laughs> just releasing people. You know, obviously they didn't fit quite the criteria uh, in that regard. So is there sort of a, a good process and I guess like a tick list in, in some in some ways? And are there words of warning that you might give somebody who's feeling like, yeah, God's calling me somewhere? Yeah, I'll, I'll say a few things. and uh, But, you know, I think... I think you know, there's just, <clears throat> just I guess, people that you you think they've 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 got it. You know, they they get it. They understand who we are, what we're about, and you know, carry the same values. Uh, and so that there's gonna, you know, the Bible talks about you know, do do two people walk together unless there's agreement? There has to be a deep agreement. Otherwise, it just it, you know, it just becomes this constant tension and difficulty. So a sense of agreement in values and sort of hearts being connected together. So it's relational. It's not just kind of, um, it's not just clinical categories. There's a sense in which we, we want to walk together. We want to be together. This is going to be a fun journey together. This is going to be partnership. It's ever so important. Um, I think that's a real a real big one. But I also I also think sometimes you have to, Give people the comp confidence, you know, that that where I think people very easily fall into a sense of I, I don't I'm not qualified, you know, I couldn't be that. They look at other people and go, I could never be that. Maybe one example we've got is a few guys who just went out, you know, they're not typical church leaders at all, you know. Um, three guys went out, single guys just moved to another part of the world um, for work to start a YouTube channel. Um, and we're just witnessing, sharing Jesus, um, you know, divine appointments and just looking to live missionally and people started gathering to them. And at some point I said, have you thought of planting a church? And they were all, you know, they could have fallen off their seats. It just didn't even occur to them because that's not me. I could, I could never do that. Um, you know, sort of three years later, there's a lovely flourishing um, house church of, you know, 20 to 25 people that, and these guys are learning to be elders. It's beautiful. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. So I think you're... You're looking for, you know, agreement, heart connection. Um, but, you know, I do think, you know, um, that you're not, that, that we've got to also have that sense where we don't get so categorised that you, you you narrow down who it is and it, it becomes the 0.1%. <laughs> because I think then we're going to just, we're going to lock things up. You know, there will be those people and praise God, let, 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 let's get behind them. But there's going to be a whole load of other people like in, in Antioch, as mentioned earlier, where they are unnamed Christians, you know, unnamed, unknown, but they talk about Jesus and they love Jesus and the kind of life they live, if people gathered to them, they'd learn they'd learn a beautiful thing and something lovely would grow. So I think we've also got to help people see, you know, that yes, God could use them in that way. Um, and I think, interestingly, I'll finish with this, because they're not conventional um, church leaders in that sense, they've actually connected in with the apostolic, with myself particularly, and, and uh, some, some prophetic ministry as well, in a really meaningful way, because they're going, we haven't got a clue what we're doing, you know, to help us. And so it's been a really lovely partnership of 
working together. So I think that that's been, uh, you know, somewhere where I've I've just felt a really open door to to serve because of that. So, you know, I think there are categories, but I, I think we need to make sure that we don't caricature what kind of people can do this stuff. So are you saying that that men, women, married, single, rich, poor, are they can they all go and plant a church? Because sometimes people might have an image, oh, it's, it's mainly a couple that go. It's a, it's a, it's a family and the guy seems to take the lead. What about everyone else? And if they do go, does it mean that they've then got to take on leading of the church, like these guys who you mentioned, you know, they're, they're kind of learning to be elders. Has everyone got to do that? So if they sign up, it's like, oh, no, I'm not sure I'm called to be a pastor, some people will think. That's a really good question. I think that we, I, personally, I think that, no, I think that there are some people who are just brilliant pioneers. And this is where the values thing is so key. Because I think if we're if we're aligned on on, on values, we, we kind of have a sense together in 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 where we want this to go, values wise, not in terms of style, but but values wise, then you're not gonna you're not gonna hit those kinds of roadblocks on the way because everyone goes, you know, from the from the start aligned on those things. So I think all kinds of people can be at the forefront of pioneering works. Um, as long as they are, again, just closely connected in with, you know, the sort of translocal leadership, apostles and prophets and the like, I think we can really, really do that and work well with that. In fact, I think sometimes you get people, they will go somewhere and they will open things up evangelistically and they'll be able to make disciples in a great way. Um, and, you know, speaking to someone recently, in really interesting example, they've seen a few people saved who aren't from their locality totally, I mean, very, very dysfunctional and dark backgrounds who have now gone back to their town hundreds of miles away and are reaching their friends. And so this guy's saying to me, what do we do? And I'm saying, just disciple them. Just, you know, Zoom, <laughs> disciple them. This could, be a, this could be a church plant for us. But it'd be probably quite surprising if anyone who's currently on the ground there at the moment, at least in the first phase, grows into church leadership. But, you know, if you've got people that are meaningfully involved, nurturing, discipling, then in its time, you would, you would, want, you would want local leaders from the soil to be raised up, ideally. So I think if we can just, just get a bit more of a breadth of kind of flexibility around these things, some people are brilliant pioneers, once something's established, they don't know what to do with it, you know, and I think it kills some people to put that kind of church leader thing on them. They just die. They just want to go and start again somewhere. So we've just got to be very aware of the gifting of the Holy Spirit and really honouring that and helping people find their sweet spot and serve there and not feel like they've got a, you know, square peg in a round hole. We've, we've got to really help people um, we understand this so there can be that flow that we're looking for. Yeah, great. Morris, you were going to comment on something earlier. Well, no, I think <clears throat> Steph's just covered it very well there. I mean, everybody... Everybody can, you know, can pioneer. Uh, everybody can pray. Everybody can pioneer. Everybody can open their home. Everybody can become the household of peace in an environment, you know, uh, a landing strip for us to uh, see people gathered and so on and so forth. So, yeah, we want to prepare people as, as far as we possibly can. 
Um, but no, it doesn't mean that everybody has to be sort of a hard-edged uh, um, church leader to go and, and pioneer something in another context. I think you would want anybody to, to do that. And I've often said to people, just gather people and let us worry about what will happen in the future. You know, give us a good problem. Give us a good problem. Come to us and say, look, hey, we've got 20 people and the living room's not big enough. What do I do? Is like, okay, well, that's the sort of problem I like to have, you know, in my, in my intro, you know. Well, you know, that, and that's where we can step in and say, right, we can help here and help uh, look at bringing some structure and there's no pressure on you with that. And there's no expectation that you have to be the person that's going to carry this forward into the next phase and so on and so forth. So, no, I mean, anybody go. You know, I remember um, some parents coming to me once because, um, their child and their, you know, their adult son and wife are going off to pioneer in a country and what would happen if it all went wrong. And I'm just saying, well, the worst that can happen in this particular case is that they would go and have an adventure in another culture and come home after a year or two. I said, I don't think that's a failure. You know, I would have loved to have done, didn't have the opportunity to do that when I was first married. I would love to have gone and uh, had an adventure in another culture. And uh, if it happens that they start to gather people and some momentum grows, well, then that's a great problem, you know, let it happen. Yeah, again, I think our vocabulary and our clarity of vision needs to be articulated really well in this coming season so that we really do not just give people sort of permission, but we pursue them, whether they're single, whether they're married, whether they're young uh, and just starting out in a career or whatever, whether they're experienced leaders, whether they, I mean, we can really find meaningful mission to get to, to, to get involved with through anyone that's got a heart to do it. And I would say, just give us the problem, particularly at the moment, as there's so many, so much opportunity with the coronavirus pandemic. People are searching spiritually. There is a spiritual hunger. There's a there's an awareness that people have of the frailty of life. The missional fields have never been whiter for harvest, and it's now we need the workers. So we can helpfully support and um, give training, instruction, supply lines, encouragement to anyone who wants to have a go at pioneering. We're not great fans of sending people out on their own. I mean, Jesus sent people in twos, and I think we're learning that perhaps the best environment, the most fulfilling, least pressurising environment is to have teams. There's no reason why we can't plant with singles, women, men and women, men, single men, single women. There's no And, and pioneer, pioneer people are not necessarily the ones who are going to lead the church longer term they may not want to uh, and that also has to be established I think talked about up front right at the beginning that if you're a pioneer there's no guarantee you're going to be the one who leads the church into the long term of its maturing you your gift may well be uniquely to be a pioneer and you may need to go and do it again if what you're hearing on the podcast is making you think goodness I wonder whether maybe I could be involved in that the answer is yes you probably can just to also say on that, I think it's worth just pointing out for illustration that both with Lydia uh, in Philippi and probably with Nympha uh, in Laodicea, so both Nympha and Lydia were women who used their homes as bases for pioneering, in Nympha's case, in Laodicea and in uh, Lydia's house, Philippi. So, you know, ladies 
using what they had. Lydia was a, a businesswoman, uh, obviously had means and, and capacity uh, to, to, to present resources and gets, get really involved herself in this pioneering work. So there may be nymphas and uh, Lydia's listening to this and you may say, you know, I, I could use my business or my home or my base for you to you know, help me gather to plant um, the early stages of a church and pioneer something. So I guess in the past, perhaps people were, were waiting for a new wave of the spirit and a revival and a multiplication of numbers within the church and then sort of an outward movement to establish new churches. But uh, am I right in saying that in terms of what you think, Mike, is more of a, an, an obedience with the spirit and, and, and then comes the multiplication and the revival? Yeah, I think there are instructions that Scripture gives to us, that Jesus gives to us, and in the Great Commission, as we've referred to before, is go into the world, make disciples. That's a present, continuous, ongoing instruction to us. And, uh, you know, Paul also said, preach the word in season, out of season, by using all means, you know, save some. So there is a sort of an ongoing responsibility to evangelism, witness and resultant church planting that is irrespective of times of revival, whether the, as it were, the the low tide, the spiritual tide is out or the spiritual tide is in, in a nation or community. Our work is to, you know, do the work of an evangelist, plant churches, preach the gospel. Now, we've got to present ourselves willing and uh, uh, surrendered, engaged, obedient to what he's asked us to do. Uh, Obedience is what God blesses, and then we leave the results of our obedience to him. We had uh, Jackie Pullinger speak at our church once, and she said, people pray for a move of God. Uh, She said, I pray for a move of men. And uh, I've always been provoked by that, you know, which part of the word go, don't you understand? Um, You know, we're called to go. We don't need permission. You know, we have permission from heaven to go. Jesus said he'll be with us wherever uh, we go to the ends of the earth. The, The fields are white under harvest. We are called to go and make disciples of every tongue, tribe and nation. I mean, I don't know what other... You know, what what else are we waiting for, really? And I think it is exactly as it's just been said, you know, we need to uh, be sure that we're raising up uh, intentional disciples, men and women who understand why we're here. Uh, you know, we're not just creating performances for people to come and consume. We're raising up an army. We're making disciples of men and women who understand that's why we're here. And we, we have a part... We have an invitation to play our part in in the world's you know great story of of seeing the kingdom of God come and many many people saved and swept in and communities graceful communities multiplied across every tongue tribe and nation and it's a thrilling thrilling thing that we're called to do and uh, you know it is I think it is beholden on us to put our finger out and get on and do it really I don't think we're I, I, if we're waiting for something I can't see in the Bible what we're waiting for. When everything is, you know, the last thing Jesus said was, "Go and do this." Okay, let's go and do this. And I'm, I'm a big um, admirer of people who do extreme things across the world, whether that's climbing uh, Mount Everest or running 200 miles non-stop without any sleep. Uh, and there's a book that I read. I think the lady's name's Wendy. She ran all the way around the world 
in her, I think she was 56 or something. I think by the time she got to the end, she was possibly even 60. Uh, to spread awareness of prostate cancer, I believe it was, but her husband had died of, 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 of cancer. And, and, and you read these books of people doing such extraordinary uh, things, like you, you just can't imagine yourself doing them. And then you read of a person who's like, at that time when I read that story, she was probably twice my age, if not more, doing something that incredible. And we have such comfortable lives in, in the West. Sometimes we need something that just triggers us, that just gets us going, you know. For, for that lady, it was her husband dying of cancer. But actually, as Christians, the whole world around us is dying, <laughs> you know, and we've got an eternal message. So there shouldn't be, we shouldn't really need any more motivation than that. Um, and... Uh, just about the whole age thing. So there's there's people that are doing extraordinary things. Even if you go onto YouTube, there, there's 90-year-olds taking part in 400-meter races. You know, so I think, Mike, have you got anything to say about um, the age thing here? Because some people might think, I'm past it. I'm too old. Can't do that. I'll leave it for the younger people that they're raising up. I mean, I do think that the issue of motivation and having us sort of, in some ways in the West, particularly shaken out of our sort of lives of ease and sort of, because many of us don't really live with any great degree of adversity in an ongoing way in society or within our world generally. I mean, individually, um, people's circumstances can be very adverse and they have to, you know, really fight and become very bold and tenacious to thrive in God and to thrive in life. You know, God often has individual dealings with us that take us through a sort of a, well, a kind of a, a, a situation where we have to surrender to him. We realise our inability to, to manage without him and that, that can be a sort of a, a crucible experience that sometimes just gives us a greater surrender to the purposes of the Lord and, and that motivates us. But I do think at a collective level, the, the we can't really escape the coronavirus pandemic and the effect it has had globally and the effect it's having on the West and on the Western church. And I do think that not only people who are not Christians are being shaken in terms of their mortality, in terms of the frailty of life, the things they put their security in and actually beginning to ask really big, deep questions and think to themselves, you know, we can't fix this and we can't um, guarantee things in the way we thought we could and ensure against things and fix things by man's ingenuity. And I think within the church we're shaken, uh, perhaps shaken out of ease and comfort and an awareness of the world around which is broken, facing a Christless eternity, people, you know, needing a saviour um, to avoid perishing, God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall perish and have everlasting life. There's a, there's, a, there's a rescue mission that is on our doorstep. There's a rescue mission we can't just be passive or indifferent about. And I, I, I pray and trust that through the pandemic, I'm trusting that it will bring us out much more missionally sharp, you know, the case. And <laughs> I mean, uh, if it takes... Steph to do six marathons without drinking anything, starting when he's 56 and finishing when he's 60. Well, I'm sure he'll be up for that. Great stuff. Great stuff. And 
just sort of maybe drawing things into a bit of a land as our time's marching on, but think, thinking about people that have gone, in, in your chapter, Mike, in one of the um, sections in, the, in, that, in your book, it talks about supply lines and support. And so what does that actually look like on the ground? Because we, we all know there's examples, not, not just within our family of churches, but all over the world where people will go and it doesn't go very well. Um, they, they either they don't really get support or something goes horribly wrong. There's some sort of blow up personally or in the church and, and people get hurt and they come back and never to be seen again. Or on the other end, it can feel very formal, perhaps even controlling. You're on a list and you've got to tick certain boxes and you report in. What, what do we mean by support and supply lines? How do we stay connected properly? I mean, this is a really, really important issue. Um, I can remember Keith Hazel saying to me with a prophetic sort of edge to him with this, he said, uh, you need to make sure that uh, as relational mission expands and expand it would, he, he foresaw a day when we would be expanding very, very quickly on, on all fronts in all in all parts of the world. He said, you need to make sure you establish supply lines between Ephesians 4 ministries and those who are pioneering um, and don't outstrip your supply lines. In other words, don't let the planting outstrip the support. Now, it's difficult to manage that logistically because often things just happen. It's not like there's a central coordination point and everything is micromanaged. It's it's a lot more organic than that. But nevertheless, the principle he was making means that we really need to give atten as much attention to our supply lines as to our pioneering endeavours. And... I think one of the ways we can we can do that is to make sure that we really intentionally connect every planting situation with Ephesians 4 ministries that are serving into that situation on behalf of the apostolic team. So apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, those supply lines need to be there. Other supply lines to help with um, other, you know, areas of gifting, personal encouragement, uh, coaching, mentoring, which sounds a bit formal, but just if it's done in a relational way, not on the basis of filling in reports or saying what next course do you need, although, you know, some formal training is good, but it's more of an apprenticeship and an immersion, isn't it, where you're walking with someone and you're just helping someone. And we just need to make sure that we link enough supply lines to people who are, you know, on the ground. Now, it, it can be overdone, uh, particularly if people are a long way away and the people go and visit them and you end up with so many visitors you get, get exhausted hosting people. So it's, it's, got to, it's got to be a little bit coordinated and, and the people pioneering need to be the ones who set the parameters, really, and say, well, you know... Uh, thanks, we've got lots of people now. Perhaps we don't need anyone else for a while. So I think, you know, there is the responsibilities that end, but I'd rather people be overserved than underserved. I think people particularly who are early retired, who've got a lot of wisdom in life, a lot of life experience, the sort of spiritual mothers and fathers amongst us, I mean, we could make so much use of people like that who are godly people, 
we'd love to go for sort of short-term visits or just be on the end of a Zoom call regularly with some people, praying for people, encouraging them, being is to listen to. It doesn't always have to be strategic, problem-solving, apostolic ministry. Just godly people who love people who are pioneering and just give them wisdom from life, wisdom with their family, wisdom with their marriage, wisdom with their personal, navigating personal circumstances through living in a different place or having moved, not necessarily cross-culturally, but even within your own nation, you know, just needing sort of people who you feel you can talk to about things that are troubling you. Those are the really key supply lines. What we don't want is sort of a map with bits of wool and string that just, you know, show where people have gone and they're never heard of again. We don't want that. Um, we don't want just pictures of people on reports or websites. We, we want living connections through relationship. And we have to work intentionally at that. And, and I think we have been trying to do that. And there's always room for more improvement, but I think the certainly we understand the value of it. Um, I, do, I do think sometimes things do sadly go wrong because personal circumstances just happen and it's not the fault of lack of supply lines. It's just that some personal stuff's happened, ill health or issue, family issues or finance issues or, I don't know, burnout issues or all kinds of things can just be... Uh, can just happen where even with the best supply line stuff sometimes does happen. And I think a dose of reality we just have to say is that whenever you plant a church, there's always an element of risk in the same way as you're leading a church. But planting one, there is an element of risk. Not every seedling does make it. And it doesn't mean it's a failure if it hasn't. I mean, I applaud people who go and have a, who have a go. Obedience is what God looks at. He doesn't look at productivity he looks at fruitfulness and fruitfulness is based on being obedient to what we believe the best of our ability God has asked us to do if we do that and there doesn't appear to be any great fruit at the beginning we have been obedient and received the well done good and faithful servant from Jesus you read of great pioneering heroes of the faith you know James Fraser and Lee Siouxland uh, to, to, to name one but many others you read their biographies Many struggled for years and years to see any breakthrough whatsoever. Some even went to places and died before they saw any breakthrough and it was a, a subsequent team or a subsequent generation or their, off, their offspring even who saw the breakthrough. We mustn't think that if it doesn't particularly work out the way we anticipated or imagined it, it, it would, that we failed. Obedience is what God calls us to do and then diligent planning as best as we can to make sure that we do everything possible to make church planting a success and fruitful. But we have to be just realistic that sometimes things do go a little wrong and that's we want to celebrate heroes who've had a go, um, really genuinely, uh, because I think that gives that creates a culture where people are not then afraid to have a go, thinking, well, if I had a go and it went wrong, what would everyone think of me? We want to applaud you and cheer you on and say, well done, well done for taking that risk. So I think that's a, that's a culture we must keep building and keep articulating strongly amongst us. Maybe I could just add one small thing that there's just a little story, so it's more anecdotal really, but it had a real impact on me. I went out to the guys that I referred to earlier who, who, who went out to another nation a long way away. To, to do the YouTube channel and, and stuff. I've been out there a couple of times to be with them and um, 
the first time I went there, there wasn't really much on the ground. I just, I just decided to hang out with them. I just spent a week hanging out with, um, I'm in my late forties, you know, um, three, uh, married with three teenage kids. Um, at this point, one of the guys was married, the other two weren't. Um, and, and their lifestyle was so different from mine. I just decided I'm going to go out and just tuck in with you, see how you live. And then from there, be able to work out with you in conjunction with you. Could, could, could you, you guys plant a church? I mean, I've never had so many late nights, you know, it was, <laughs> it was brutal late nights and jet lag. But it was an interesting thing. At one point, I went, uh, uh, I went um, to a climbing wall with one of them who loves all of that, and we just just got just got involved, and that was the thing that impacted him a bit more than anything. And then the whole week, he said, uh, "When when when you came to the climbing wall with me and um, just got involved and had a go, so I just just felt like I was out with my dad, you know." And I, 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 that wasn't, you know, it wasn't a strategic move. <laughs> I just thought I'm going to just go and get involved, see, understand them and their lives, get to know them a bit. But it was really struck me how that thing there for him built an enormous amount of trust that totally, you know, sort of, I just thought, wow, I hadn't really sort of realised that. Um, and I think just little moments like that where you just you just go and, and, and do, do your best to... Um, understand people and their life and what's what you can build god builds bridges out of which can f- comes trust out of which can flow ministry and i just do think it's ever so important that it this isn't some cold formal thing we're talking about here this is this this it, it is family you know and we don't get it perfect at all but i think to just have that approach is absolutely priceless, particularly for people that are pioneering. But particularly, you know, the first few years, they don't care about strategy. They want encouragement and friendship <laughs> uh, and sort of a sense and a sense of security, which I think, you know, spiritual parenting can bring. And I think that's ever so important. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Lovely story. Wow. Well, it's been really amazing uh, listening to you all, putting uh, your advice and, and wisdom across. Um, it's been absolutely awesome. And thank you so much for coming on, Morris and Steph, and taking part today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks again, Mike. Thanks, Adam. Yes, thanks, uh, Isaac and uh, Adam and Steph and Morris. Good to be with you all. Um, Really great to talk about these things. Thanks ever so much. Yeah, bless you. Bye. Always a pleasure. Yeah, great stuff. Have a fantastic rest of the day. God bless. Bye-bye now. Thanks very much, guys. See you all. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Do get in touch and connect with us via Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at RM Churches. For more information, you can also go to the website www.relationalmission.org.